0: Prepared or brace for impact. Prepare for unconventional money moves for the Mavericks who dare to defy the status quo. Introducing the financial dynamo himself, Joshua Kravchick. Conventional.
1: Money Moves Podcast. Uh, when I when I read about you and your story and learned more about what was going on, you seem like a a person that would be a good fit for this.
0: Well, I'm I'm glad that you found me, and I'm glad that you invited me to uh, on the podcast. Uh, it's an honor. I'm not not sure how much I'll be able to impart about money, but I'll, I can certainly share about myself, and who knows what'll come out of it.
1: Yeah, totally. And, uh, what I read online is, uh, and maybe anyone listening, help them understand, are you, you're like in the health industry now? Um, is that so what I'm, your main focus is?
0: So I'm in the, uh, more, yes, I'm in the healthcare industry, but more specific, I am in the addiction treatment industry. Um, my passion is helping people who are struggling with addiction find recovery. um, and kind of help them guide them through that process. Uh, I own a residential drug and alcohol treatment center in Los Angeles uh, called Restore Health and Wellness Center. Uh,
1: we've been open about uh, about eight years. Awesome. And this all started because from what I saw was you were actually homeless at one point. And, it, you know, uh, I'm not an a- expert on addiction, but... Uh, It's not something you ever get rid of. It's just something you learn how to cope with. So it seems like to me, you've learned how to uh, shift things around a little bit. So you're at least have a nice Sprinter van if you had to sleep somewhere (laughs) overnight.
0: (laughs) So uh, that's correct. Uh, I am 15 years uh, over 15 years clean. Um, I struggled with addiction much most of my life. Most of my Teenage years, young adult years, and um, spent, uh, had bouts of homelessness and institutionalized and uh, got clean almost 16 years ago. And so, yes, um, addiction, in my opinion, or my experience, is a lifelong uh, struggle, but you do learn how to live with it and um, and not allow it to control you in the way that it once did so um, using uh, numerous tools and those tools change as time goes on Uh, initially it was um, other people's support and support of primarily 12-step meetings but that's changed as the years have gone on for me
1: uh, and by 12-step meetings, you mean like AA?
0: Like Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous. There's many, many different 12-step groups. They're all, they have the same basic philosophy, but some are more focused on narcotics or gambling or alcohol or sex. There's, a, a addiction is all-encompassing, I believe. And um, so when I talk about addiction, I'm I'm primarily talking about drug and alcohol abuse but uh, you can kind of replace that with any number of
1: things cool stuff so I guess a question uh, interesting question is and something you'd be able to answer is like what's it like living out on the streets uh, most people just see the person on the corner and you know don't make eye contact with that person. Uh, There's probably a lot of uh, unnecessary stereotypes that come with homelessness that a lot of people aren't aware of that I'm sure you could shed some light on.
0: So for me, uh, addiction took me to homelessness. And and the the sad part about it is I had people who loved and cared for me, um, but I had basically through addiction alienated them you know, alienated myself from them. Um, and so I ended up being homeless. And uh, a lot of that stemmed from the fact that I was just unable to hold a job, I was on, un- I was unable to uh, communicate effectively with people, I was unable to not use drugs and alcohol to kind of numb my pain. And ultimately, I ended up not being able to afford a place to live, not being employable, uh, and not being somebody who you would really wanna spend any uh, time with. Um, and, and I think, uh, you know I can't speak for other people who are, have been homeless, but for myself, um, it was something that I needed to happen for me because one day I, I woke up and I, I said like, this is not what I want for myself. And that's where I had to go to stop using drugs and alcohol. Um, Other people might not need to go to those lengths. But for me, I really needed to be in a place where I didn't have any other choices. I didn't have any other options. And that was helpful for me.
1: Where were were you living at this time? Like, what city? I was living in Baltimore. I'm originally...
0: I'm originally from the Baltimore area and and that's uh, ultimately where I uh, got clean and stopped using drugs.
1: Oh sweet. Randomly, I'm actually moving to Baltimore in like two weeks. Uh, oh, really? My wife and I my wife and I are expecting our first kid so she wants to move back to where her family's at. so we'll be uh, in like the Silver Springs, Ellicott City, Columbia sorta area up there.
0: I'm- I'm very familiar with that area. I am very familiar with that area. Well, congratulations on the birth of your, the, uh, coming birth, upcoming birth of your first child. Um, that is is certainly a life-changing experience. I've, uh, I have three children of my own and, um, yeah, it's been, um, that's an amazing journey. I will, I will, I will say.
1: I appreciate that. And, uh, Baltimore doesn't seem like a place you want to be homeless. <laughs> uh, it's, it's not ideal.
0: Uh, I, I don't think there's anywhere you want to be homeless, but certainly um, Baltimore is a place that has struggled with finding kind of its footing. I, I, you know, there's, there's two Baltimores, right? There's uh, Inner Harbor, Harbor East, you know, Four Seasons Baltimore. And then just a mile down the road, there's, you know, uh, Biddle and Milton and Monument and these like blocks of North Avenue that are like, basically burned out blocks. Um, and it's, it's very sad because I, I really believe it's an amazing city, but so few people have opportunities there. And, um, you know, uh, it's home. I don't go back much, but it, it is home. So yeah, you know, my mother is still there. My sister is still there. So uh, we go back probably three or four times a year.
1: Cool. Well, I'll be there. So maybe we'll meet meet up while you're up there if you have there time. You go. There you go. And so when you're homeless in Baltimore, how, how, do, you, how do you get out of that? Uh, are you just, like, walking around, like – on a spiritual journey looking to find yourself and then all of a sudden you have that like aha moment. What is, I feel like it's just interesting to hear your viewpoint from how you went from someone I could see on a street corner today and then 10 years down the road, I meet that same person and they're super successful.
0: Well, for me, it was about, you know, I ended up in a institution, uh, I would, uh, treatment center is probably a stretch, but I had, had, had these bouts of homelessness and unemployment and I, uh, reached out to somebody and they were able to help get me into a, uh, non profit treatment center. And mm-hmm. it was while I was there, um, that. Somebody reached out to my mother, and my mother basically agreed that she would foot the bill for two weeks of halfway house rent, and that was really the start of my journey into getting off the streets and getting and getting clean.
1: Um, and how long? How long ago was this? This was almost sixteen years ago. Okay, so we're, oh, two decades. What? What was the half? Halfway house. Like how much did your mom have to put up?
0: It was, a, it was $150 a week. And uh, so she put up $300. And she said to me, this is the last thing I'm going to do. If you use again, don't call me for help because I don't have anything else. Um, throughout the years of my addiction, I had taken a lot from my parents. They had bailed me out many, many, many times. I had, you know, I'm not proud to say I had stolen from them a number of times. And, um, and my parents were not people who were well off by any stretch. They were very solidly middle class uh, at best. Um, So, but my parents were always giving, my mother and my stepfather, were always giving and trying to bail me out and trying to make things softer for me. And, uh, but that was really kind of the epiphany, which was, my mother had said that before, but I had I heard it that time. You know, I felt it. Like mm-hmm. I said, and, and my mother has always been my biggest enabler. And so her saying, there's no more help it it, it had, For whatever reason, she had said that before, but it, it, res- it resonated with me at that time. And I don't know if it had been that there was nobody else to turn to. I don't know if it had been that these bouts of homelessness and the bouts of um, daily drug use uh, had taken its toll. I mean, my situation wasn't good. I had stolen from drug dealers. I had drug dealers looking for me. I had people threatening my life. It was, it was, I was in a very precarious situation uh, at that time. And maybe some of that also motivated me because I didn't want to run into those people again. I didn't want to be in that situation again. And um, I think deep down on a, I'm not a religious person, but on a spiritual level, I knew that I could be more, you know, I knew Mm. that I had, more to give. I knew that, uh, being a burden to my family and to society was not something that I, uh, had ever thought I was going to be. And I really had an epiphany that, that I could be more.
1: And so 16 years ago, you were 20 in your twenties. I was
0: in my, I was almost 30 so I I, actually I was 30 because uh I'm 46 now so I ended up getting clean um two weeks before my 30th
1: birthday got it and did you have any like sort of normalcy in your life prior to that point uh I did so I
0: was a uh high school wrestler I went to college on a uh, Division One wrestling scholarship. Um, okay.
1: So you're a so bad I, man.
0: Uh, I have, I have. Uh, yes, <laughs> there, I, I, yeah, I guess in some ways you could say that. Um,
1: I mean that with peace and love. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so, so yeah, I I had normalcy in the in the sense that I had a mother who loved me and a stepfather who loved me and a sister and I had an education and uh, I was able to go to college. Um, but I had always struggled with addiction. Um, I even yeah, I found drugs and alcohol at a very early age. I found um, kind of peace and solace in drugs and alcohol. It was kind of uh, I real I really say this, and it, it's it's sometimes I need to explain it further. That early on, drugs and alcohol saved my life, and what I mean by that is. It helped me uh, because growing up, I didn't have a lot of coping skills. I didn't have, and I had a lot of emotional turmoil and drugs and alcohol numb the pain inside. And it kind of allowed me to survive how I felt. And it it almost made me feel normal. And and I, I can't explain why I didn't feel normal, but for whatever reason, they they that was my coping mechanism for a, and unfortunately when you use drugs and alcohol long enough it moves from your coping mechanism to what's actually killing you and uh and that and that happened for me you know that 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 you know this once was my best friend and now it's my you know mortal enemy is probably the best way to explain it
1: and i mean how do you mean by like you didn't feel normal like you, so, can you can you can you remember like what was like that first instance that like caused you to be like oh like you, know, you get drunk it kind of shuts off your brain this is fun
0: well you know my mother had been married a few times i'm, I'm a i'm a product of an interracial uh, relationship my father who died many many years ago was black my mother was white and i never felt like i fit in so I always felt as if I was trying to navigate this world and it, it, it didn't make sense to me. Um, a lot of that had to do with not feeling like I identified, not feeling like I was white enough, didn't feel like I was black enough uh, and, and struggled um, with really finding my, my place in, in this world. And some, and there were external situations. Um, there was abuse from an adoptive father. There was uh, there was racism um, directed at me. Uh, and then some of it was just uh, feeling not good enough, like I didn't belong. And I don't know. Uh, you know, there were instances where people told me that but i think i felt that uh just in society that i i just something just didn't feel like i fit in and and when i found drugs and alcohol i didn't feel that way it it felt like it was my answer
1: yeah yeah i grew up in a divorced family as well and uh you just don't always feel like you're a part of the family or a part of the people around you. Uh, it's just like uh, we, we spoke about this on the last episode with Kevin Kreider. Uh, he grew up in an adopted family, and he's Korean, and he got adopted by a white family. He's like, you look in the room, and you're like, why am I different?
0: Right, Exactly. Exactly, exactly. I also had this feeling, and I don't know if some of it stemmed from the abuse that I had in my younger years, but I I never felt safe. I never felt safe. And that was, um, and that was something that I always had. And and even to this day, um, I, I have to remind myself, like, for the most part, I'm safe, I'm secure, I'm okay. Um, and it's something that I try to impart in my children, right? I'm always hugging them. I'm always telling them I love them and I'm, and I'm stern with them many times, but, um, I, I never want them to feel like they're not safe. Mm -hmm. And it's, um, I, I, I feel like that's my job in life to protect them. And, uh, I feel like I didn't have some of that growing up. And so I try to, 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 uh, protect them as much as, as one possibly can and, and reassure them that they're not only safe, but that they're enough as who they are, right? With all their idiosyncrasies and quirks and um, that, that, that they're enough. I think that's really
1: important. Being, so now that you are a parent, what would have you done to yourself is there anything you could have done as a parent to like prevent this from happening uh, maybe there's a parent out there who has a child that's struggling with addiction do you just let them fall flat on their face flat on their face at a young age so that they they have more time to recoup rather than such as yourself you had to restart at uh, i wouldn't say 30s middle age but 30s a, 30s a late start to get get rolling on everything
0: Uh, I was, I would certainly say I was late in the game. I mean, there were, you know, I, I had friends who, uh, (laughs) at 30 had investment properties and had prestigious careers and, uh, were happily married and had children. And certainly I would say 30, uh, especially then was, was late. Right. I did certainly feel like, um, that I had to dig myself out of a hole and, um, as for parents who have children who are struggling or um, having issues, it, it's tough to say. I, tr- I, I believe we try to do the best we can as parents. And, and, you, and there, are, uh, there are instances where parents are loving and caring and supportive and the children are given uh, everything that they need and want to succeed in life, and they still make poor decisions, and they still go down the road of addiction. Um, and it, quite the opposite, there are families who are not uh, in a position to provide those things for whatever reason, whether they're um, you know divorced families or there's a some uh, w- a single parent household, and it might be a terrible environment, and that child or young adult ends up uh thriving in spite of those circumstances um for me i I would say it's better to kind of intervene early on in in that journey if you see somebody struggling um because it is a journey Um, most people who who are in recovery from drug and alcohol abuse or from addiction, uh, they didn't just stop one time. They've probably tried to stop many times. And there's probably been many circumstances that uh, led them to need to stop, but for whatever reason, they hadn't stopped. Um, I'm a believer of intervening early so that uh, you're not 30, 35, 40 years old, so that you know there are resources because by the time I was able to get clean, there were no resources. There was no money. There was no health insurance. There was there were not a lot of people rallying around me to help me get help. But when you're a young adult or a dependent, you still have things like health insurance. Um, you haven't wasted all your family's resources. And so um, help is usually more readily available when you're younger. Um, And, you know, so I always tell people that, that, and the other thing is you don't have to become homeless to stop, right? You don't have to have, you don't have to be become incarcerated um, because you did something in, uh, you committed a terrible crime while you were under the influence. Um, You can stop because you just woke up one morning and you didn't like the way you felt, or you interacted in a way that you, you are ashamed of or whatever. You don't have to be like me, which, uh, you know, I had destroyed my life, for, you know, for anybody who's read my story or uh, read anything about me or had a discussion with me, I'm very candid about it. Like I had destroyed my life. I was addicted to heroin. I was addicted to crack cocaine. I, you know, I stole from every person who ever loved me. Um, I had nothing. I had a, I had a less than 400 credit score when I started the journey of my recovery. Um, and it's much harder to come back from that. It's much harder to recreate yourself. You know, I, I, I think back to, I remember buying a $8,000 car and I literally had a 30% interest rate when I bought this car. And, you know, on an $8,000 car, uh, (laughs) yeah, they they give, they give, I don't know, they give loans that high. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, they were, it's, it's usurious, but, um, you know, I think I had a $550 car payment. It was an $8,000. I mean, it's really hard to get ahead when you've dug yourself that deep, you know, a hole, um, so I'm always suggesting that people try to, to, to kind of get control of this earlier on, um, because uh, I mean, you're you're this is a podcast somewhat about money and certain things, but like, it's hard it's hard to come back from that,
1: right? And so your mom gives you the money. You're in this house, this halfway house. Uh, going back a little bit, what what happens next? You obviously got out. Uh, um,
0: the, the journey was long. This this is a, it. It was, uh, you know, at that point, I basically college educated, um, because I had a, an, an education. Um, I had people who loved me. Um, I went. Uh, I made it my job to stay clean. So every day I went to a meeting, you know, it was, it wasn't really a choice that was part of the requirement for living in this particular halfway house. Um, You had to remain abstinent from all drugs and alcohol uh, and you had to get a job. And I, uh, I went and I sold shoes, you know, for the first six, six to nine months of my recovery. And then from there, uh, I went into the car business. I had been in the car business before. I've always been somebody who was persuasive and uh, able to sell and and communicate with people and connect with people. And uh, I went back into the car business. and, um, And I realized that wasn't a business I really felt good about or wanting to be in. Um and are you, are you starting to I, make money at this point a little bit? I'm I'm starting to make money at this point. I'm starting to um in the car business, I'm starting to make decent commissions and I'm selling a lot of cars again. It was something I've always been good at and uh but I wasn't feeling good about what I was doing. So mm-hmm. I so I actually had uh a friend suggest that i sell treatment and i didn't know what that meant because i went to a non-profit treatment center i didn't know that treatment was a business i didn't know that there was a position in this treatment center which was marketing and sales i i I didn't i didn't know anything about it um but this person was able to get me an interview um, at a treatment center that's no longer open and operating. And it was a sales and marketing, a business development position. And <clears throat> I was able to, I, I did get that job. And I was able to start to learn about the addiction treatment industry, uh, about mm-hmm. uh, addic- addiction rehabs as a business as a for-profit business, um, and I started to really quickly become good at communicating with people, uh, the importance of recovery, and and become a resource to help people get into treatment, which is how my career started in this in the industry,
1: um, and I never looked back. <laughs> Well, well, so a little bit of insight, like how long were you selling shoes? How long did you went to cars? Like, was it like a long time?
0: Pro- no, I did those things probably for a combined 18 months.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Maybe, maybe it was. Yeah, it's probably about eight, uh, 18 months to two years. Uh, I did have a brief stint where. I was practicing, and this is like a very, like a big digression, kind of a spiritual journey where I started to teach yoga and practice yoga and uh, kind of uh, a particular style of massage, kind of a healing uh, discipline, if you want to call it. So I went through a, a year of that, and then I started working. Uh, in the addiction treatment industry, as a sales and marketing, as a business development representative. Um, so, about two and a half years, I would say, between shoes to starting to work in treatment.
1: Mm-hmm. And so, your mom gave you the the last ultimatum. Went to the house, sold shoes, sold cars. Now you're getting into what you're still into today. Yeah. So what happened next?
0: So I, I worked for a couple of different organizations. I've never been someone who was afraid of risk, Right. So I have, and I, I think a lot of it has, has to do with where I come from and kind of my experiences in addiction. Um, I'm pretty risk averse. So I went. You mean risky
1: for... or like against risk?
0: Uh, I'm sorry. It's not risk averse. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to take risks, right? I have a high tolerance for risks. I should say. Well,
1: when, when you start off from negative, it's like, if I go to zero, I'm still ahead.
0: It, it was, it, I've always kind of had that outlook, which is, well, look what I've come from. So it, it's not going to be as bad as that, and I'm mm-hmm. and I can probably find my way out of it. And more times than not, I've been I've been accurate. Um, so uh, I went and I worked for that first treatment center, and then they ended up being acquired by a very large healthcare group. Um, and I just didn't like the transition. There was infighting between my then boss and then my new boss. And I left and I went and worked for another organization uh, where I ended up doing so well that I ended up becoming their director of business development and basically helped build that organization up to a point in, in a very short time where they actually, where the part, those partners actually ended up eventually exiting Um, from that business. And I was not a partner in that business. um, Although I feel like I should have been a partner in that business. And when I had approached them about being a partner in that business, uh, they unequivocally told me no. And I went out on my own and started a small consulting company doing this type of work, sales and marketing and business development for uh, a couple of treatment centers uh, and I did that for a couple of years until I decided really the only way I was going to be fully satisfied was if I opened up my own center and mm-hmm. um, I did that and I, I were you know, going on our ninth year, I believe. And uh, the rest is history. A lot of, a lot of learning experiences through those nine years, <coughs> excuse me, but, that's that's how it that that's really the story in a nutshell uh i'm i'm kind of a believer of of jumping into it and then learning right um it's kind of my my mantra for uh people that i mentor or uh other entrepreneurs who ask for advice um i almost say start now and think later right because I think one of the biggest things that happens with people is I call it analysis paralysis. We, yeah. we, we overthink things. We overthink things. We want things to be perfect before we start. And the reality is if you ask most people who have started or created successful businesses, they started the, the, the they started and they figured out processes, uh, ways to scale the business staff the business, Um, if you're talking about sales fulfillment, they figured out all those things after they had already started the business and started selling the business, right? For me, I remember opening a treatment center, I was really good at the marketing and the sales and the admissions processes, which got people to go to treatment but I had never owned and operated a treatment center. I had consulted for centers in this specific kind of funnel, right, which was, I know how to get people to get to your center, but I, I, I we opened the center and we, we didn't have processes on how to feed them, how to get them, most of them smoked. How do you get them cigarettes? How do you get them from point A to point B? These were all things, how do you get, accreditation. How do you hire? These are all things that when we opened, we had very little experience with. But the part that we had was how do you communicate that treatment can save somebody's life and change somebody's life, change the conditions of their life and get them there. And ultimately, we were able to put processes in place, hire people who are much smarter than I am to, to actualize these things to uh put processes in place to hire the right staff to get the right credentialing to make sure that we had a product that was now worth what we were selling to people
1: right so so you you were great at getting the people to come and then it's like let's figure out the rest the rest later and that's that's any business. Uh, the person who is going to talk about that business, like, yeah, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Or you just got to be like Nike and just, do, just it. do it. Exactly. Just do Just do it. See what happens. And, and
0: not to say that we didn't have good people when we first opened, but things take time to materialize and to, and to, uh, for processes to be put in place. I mean, we were providing very good therapy. I, I knew obviously that I wasn't equipped to provide therapy, so we hired, you know, a few licensed clinicians when we first started. Um, now that's grown to many, many, many more people. But in the beginning, it was just a few of us wearing a whole lot of different hats, and and we slowly figured it out. Actually, pretty quickly we figured it out, and we figured out what we needed so that we were providing a good treatment experience for our clients. Um, but, you know, for me, I always think the best thing I ever did was get started. You know, it's it's to, it was to start, right? That was really what I felt we needed to do is get open. And that's what we did. We got open and then we figured the rest out.
1: Yeah, I I, I agree a hundred percent. There's so many people out there that have a vision, have a dream, and just 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 live their life. And they either start later or they never start at all. And uh, I was I was reading a book by Daniel Pink, something about regrets. And most people regret the things they don't do more than the things that they did uh, when it when everything's said and done at the end of the day.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. What, uh, I, do, I do not regret opening Restore Health and Wellness Center. We've helped many, 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 many people, uh, I've lost count, uh, find recovery. Uh, now it's up to them whether they want to stay in recovery, whether they want to continue that journey. But we've helped, th- we've helped thousands of people uh, in the recovery process, in their journey. And I'm, I'm extremely proud of the work that we've done, that we continue to do. Um, it's also, you know, it's helped me find uh, a purpose. It's one of the things that gives me purpose. And it's also provided uh, financial stability for myself and for my family, which is something that I really thought I'd never have. Um, to be able to say, uh-huh. To employ a lot of, you know, it's not just my clients, but we employ over a hundred people, and to help those people find their passion and find their purpose and and give them some financial stability is is a is a huge point of pride for me. Um, so, you know, I I never thought I'd be where I am today. Um, But it wouldn't have happened if i hadn't gotten started if i hadn't taken the, the risk if i didn't have kind of the belief and the courage and the insight that i th- that i thought i could do it um and th- those are those are the positive attributes that helped me get uh to where i am to start uh i think a lot of entrepreneurs don't talk about um kind of the characteristics that I say a lot of times I'm an entrepreneur because I I don't work that well with others. You know, like there's the the, the flip side of that is, uh, I don't know that I have the personality to work in an organization in a system like that long Mm -hmm. term. Right, I almost believe a lot of entrepreneurs are forced to start businesses because they can't thrive in environments uh, in other environments uh, where they're employed.
1: <laughs> Seriously, yeah. Seriously, it for me for me it was like I thought I had so many good ideas and no one thought my ideas were good. So I was just well, kind of I mean, like, well, I'm gonna go see gonna if they're take, good or not.
0: I'm gonna take my ideas and I'm gonna go over. I'm gonna take my ball and I'm gonna go play with it over here. A lot of that is because whether we have ego or arrogance or we don't take direction from uh either we don't work well with subordinates or we don't work well to our the hot with the higher ups sometimes it's we don't work well in this in this whatever system is in place at, at that particular organization that doesn't mean that you might not go to another organization and thrive in that system but i think i think one of the things that i have is i have a lack of patience right and so i have this impulsivity and kind of this lack of patience that make me say, Oh, you don't want to do it this way. Well, I'm going to go do it this way. I I think this way is going to work. So I'm going to go do it. And I think if you took a poll of a lot of entrepreneurs or business owners, especially founders, you would find they probably all have that in common.
1: Right. For me, it was more of like, I have these good ideas and I, I have a sense of where things are going. Not like, how do I make a bunch of money today? Like, I don't care about today. I care more about like five, 10, 15 years from now. And I've always had that mindset. Like in high school, I, I was, I remember going to the gym, couldn't even like bench 95 pounds. And I was like, now like 95 is like, you know, if I want to get a nice stretch and like pump out a thousand or however many I want to do, like it's nothing. Uh, right. And you just build that muscle and, and, it's, I don't, it doesn't seem like you have a lack of patience. It just seems like you have, I would say the unconventional ideas that other people are like, that's a bad idea. It's like, well, let me go do it and see what happens. And then if it's bad, then I won't do it again. Cause being a business owner, you got to learn from the mistakes. It's, you know, you're asking, yourself, why did this happen? Well, why did this happen? Why did this happen? And I mean, the thing with business is, you know, rule one, mistakes is going to happen. Rule two, don't make the same mistake again. <laughs>
0: Absolutely, and and we've made a lot of mistakes um, in our in our growth. in 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 our, some were recent. I mean, we made mistakes in 2019 where I thought we might have to close the business, um, but we were able to kind of sustain through that difficult period, and then uh, not make the same mistake again. And you you learn over time. You you learn. Uh, you learn from those mistakes. And and then it takes discipline to not do it again, right? Because sometimes, it, it, even though you know you just made that mistake, it still looks like it may work, right? Oh, if I go that way, it may work. And sometimes it requires a lot of discipline um, to say, oh, I went down that road, it didn't work. And I know it, it It looks like it still may be appealing, but I did that. Let me go this way. And, um, you know, I, I feel like we've built a very, it's an exciting thing to build a business that does well financially, but also helps a lot of people, right? It solves a problem, right? Mm-hmm. This, my, uh, the business that we have is has a, has a mission, and that's to help people, recover from addiction. And it's a very clear mission. And when you have a very clear mission, like, I'm always working on how do we execute on that mission? Right? I'm, I'm focusing on that. Uh, I, and I'm, <clears throat> I have a business partner, who thank God, he's way more in the details. I'm way more in the vision, and he's way more in the in the details. Right? And I, I think that's important to find somebody to collaborate with, who doesn't have the same strengths that you do. Right? Doesn't look at things necessarily the same way you do. You figure out a common ground how to work together, and figure out uh, and kind of prioritize what each of you or the team is good at. And, and those are the things that you do. So if my funny enough, if, if I'm in a meeting with my team and they start talking about stats and, and, and finances and I zone out and I almost raise my hand and ask for permission to leave the meeting because, because I'm, not, I'm not good at the details. I'm good at, at the direction. I'm good at starting. I'm good at building. But when it starts to be in the minutiae, I I'm lost. But it took me a long time to figure that out that hey these things they don't interest me at all. They don't interest me. I know they're an important part of how this business operates, how we help people, but this doesn't interest me. And it's not a good use of my energy, and therefore I'm not going to participate in those parts of the business that I don't bring value to right that i don't and and as an a founder and an owner it's sometimes hard to say like i'm gonna take my hands off of this piece i'm not even going to focus on that because it is ultimately your responsibility to have a healthy sustainable business but i think it's a strength to recognize i have weaknesses this is not my like, like my partner, we have a team that does it now, but initially in the beginning, he is very detail-oriented uh, in, in regards to money and this and that. And
1: he's, he's the boring partner. You're the exciting right, one. And,
0: and employees would always, and what employees started to figure out in our early years was if they wanted something that cost money, they would come and ask me because I wasn't thinking about the American Express bill. I was thinking about, if my therapist took this training, they would ultimately be a better therapist. Or, you know, what does this look like from a marketing? Perspective? I, I was always looking at, at that aspect of it. And my partner was always like, you can't say yes to everybody. he, he was, he would talk about things like ROI. And I was law, law, all right, like, what What does that mean even? Roy? What's Roy? A, Who's Roy? Yeah, right, Who's exactly. Roy? <laughs> and he would say, well, if we spend X, what does it equal in Y, right? And And I'd be like, oh, okay. Because I just thought about how do we make this the best thing possible? But I didn't think about like, well, we need to collect this amount of money and we have to have this amount of clients. I was always just focused on how do we make this the best product? and thank goodness i have a partner who's who wants to have a high quality par- product but also knows that uh you got to be able to pay the bills. And there's got to be an, enough money there.
1: Yeah. So this reminds me of uh the movie the aviator. I I never saw that. I never saw uh, that with Leonardo DiCaprio, uh, the yeah, story I of never, Howard I Hughes. Yeah, I never Hughes so he, he was like, I'll spend everything. And then he had his one guy, Noah Dietrich, I believe his name was. And he's basically, you can't do that. You can't just, and this is like movie based in like the twenties, thirties, almost, that's almost a hundred years ago. And he's like, you, get, you think we just got like millions of dollars laying around for you to buy airplanes? Like it doesn't work that way. Like you can't just right. be like, yo, give me $3 million. Like you, you don't just have $3 million laying around. I mean, some people do, but it's still typically there's, there's steps to get it.
0: Steps to get to it. Right. I mean, well, there, there's a perfect example. I remember in 2019, it was our first year that we had ever lost money and there was a lot of things going on in the industry where insurance companies didn't want to pay the providers because they were trying to um, weed out bad actors who were, who were, Who were basically providing healthcare who were practicing healthcare fraud and it was a very difficult year and uh, that year we became a preferred provider with three of the major insurance companies and um i remember trying to go get a line of credit when we were losing money and the bank just looking at us like we were insane right like and there was a, a a practical business principle that I learned during that time, which is, no, you get you get a line of credit when you don't need a line of credit, right? You get debt, you take on debt when you don't need debt, right? Doesn't mean you necessarily use it, but better to have it and not need it, and need it and not have it, right? And that was a very very uh important life lesson for me right because we have been we we've bootstrapped this whole business we we don't have outside investors we don't have private equity you know we have an equity partner uh it's just my partner and myself and anything that we've done to grow the business has been basically reinvesting any profits that we've had over the years into growing the business um and that comes with its you know Pluses and minuses. I don't answer to anybody in regards to that. But when it comes time to have to write a check, I'm the one that has to write the check. So, um, great lessons to to be learned, right? In in business.
1: Totally. And coming to a close here, uh, what what are the next steps for you and your business? What are you What are you hoping people, if anyone wants to connect with you or anyone you're looking to connect with? who might listen to this, what would you like to have happen moving forward in your life?
0: So we just opened uh, a new 24 bed state of the art facility uh, in West Los Angeles, which is super exciting. Uh, It's a big departure from how treatment is, is provided in Southern California. Historically, that's happening in a residential setting in, um, the license is usually given out for six people. And we just got a property. Uh, It was a two and a half year process, opened in a old convalescent home, where it's a campus style, 24 beds, uh, all services provided on staff residential unit. And uh, we're super excited about this new part of our development. Um, And we can, you know, as for people who are struggling, who are interested in you know, getting help or, or, or have a loved one who's seeking help. They can always reach out directly to me. Um, I'm easily found on Instagram at Eric Paskin um, and our treatment center, restore health and wellness center. Uh, the website is restorecenterla.com, center LA.com. And uh, people can reach out to us in either of those manners. I have staff always answering the phones 24 hours a day in regards to getting some people treatment. Uh, or answering questions about a loved one. And if somebody's struggling and they are, they don't want to read, they're not at that step, they can send me a DM uh, through Instagram. It's probably the best way.
1: Eric, thanks for coming on, brother.
0: Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
1: Yeah, it was fun. I had a good time. Thank you
0: so much. I appreciate it again. And uh, best of luck to you and your growing family.
1: Thanks. Peace and love, everyone. We'll see you all next time.